Well, we are celebrating the victory of Jesus. It is Easter Sunday, uh, one of my favorite Sundays throughout the year, and the victory of Jesus marks the, the, the high point of redemptive history. It was the work that he completed on Friday, Saturday, and Sunday that is the, the difference between B.C. and A.D. It tore the timeline in half. I thought it would be a, an interesting approach to this Easter Sunday to go through and track the power of resurrection in the Scripture. Resurrection power. And so my approach is, I want to begin with a, a text in John chapter 2 and then kind of skip a stone across a few other passages you'll see in your sermon notes that we're going to look at and, and then land with this, this reality of the promise of resurrection for believers. So that's our, our plan today. John 2, verses 13 through 22 are going to be the main passage that we, we dig on together today. would encourage you to go there in your Bibles. Uh, make sure that you have a Bible open. I want you to, to take God's word for it, not my word for it. These verses are, are His inspired word. They're good for us. And they speak of absolute truth. So four points to study today. The first, resurrection prophesied. Resurrection prophesied. And John 2 is a fascinating passage. Let's study it a little together. Begins in verse 13. The Passover of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple, he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and and pigeons. And the money changers were sitting there. Okay, so got a bit of a a setting here. Let me give you the context of this. Uh, Right over here on this side is referred to as the court of the Gentiles, this big area right out here. Um, these are the southern steps. This is Solomon's portico. And right here is the court of the Gentiles. And <clears throat> this was filled with animals and uh, money changers. Uh, one of the reasons is, is that people would travel at great distance to come and celebrate Passover in Jerusalem. And it wasn't practical for them to bring their animals with them. So here's a little bit of the, uh, the, the scene that Jesus was taking in. First of all, animal sales for every sacrifice required, the people had their animals there. And, and all that goes with that, just, just think of the sounds, um, the smells, and the, the, you know, the issues, the, the dung on the, the temple uh, floor, all over the place uh, up there on the, on the temple mount. In addition to that, you also had money changers. Now, it's interesting uh, that the annual temple tax was required of all males who were 20 years and and up, and that was a a tax that was required to be paid only in Jewish or Tyrian coins because of the silver content in those coins. It was better. So they wouldn't accept foreign money. As people would travel a great distance, they had their foreign money. They would have to go buy an animal, and then they would have to trade their coins so that they could pay the appropriate temple tax in the right money. The problem is what I'm sure began as a wonderful service to those who had traveled from great distance. It turned into uh, just corruption and exploitation, usury. I mean, it was, it was outrageous. People had marked up the animal prices considerably. They were charging outrageous amounts, and it was kind of a corner on the market. I mean, if you didn't have an animal to sacrifice— what are you going to do? So you had to pay, and they did. They paid crazy amounts for their sacrificial animal that they were going to then take to the Passover ceremony, and 
than when they wanted to pay the temple tax, the same thing happened. One scholar said they were paying upwards of 12.5% on exchange rate. And these, these uh, money changers were padding their pockets off of those who had come to worship the Lord. So, you have this, uh, uh, this corruption taking place so bad. It was such a horrific scene that Jesus in Matthew 21, in the second cleansing of the temple, he referred to this, this mess as a den of robbers. A den of robbers that had come into the temple courts. So what does Jesus do? Well, Jesus, making a whip of cords, he drove them out of the temple with the sheep and the oxen. He poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. He told those who sold pigeons, take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. Wow. Now, I want you to imagine the scene that this would have caused, okay? Jesus makes a whip of cords. He's, he's stringing together this, this whip of some sort, and then he's just lashing people and driving people out. And just think, I mean, there's birds flying all over the place. There's, there's people scrambling, jumping out of the way. You've got oxen and sheep. They're running all different directions. And for the, the money changers, their tables go flying, and money goes everywhere, well, what happens when that takes place? People are diving, stuff in their pockets. It's total chaos. And it all goes back to this one man named Jesus, who is irate, righteously angry that his father's house had become a place of business and extortion. And he drives him out. What a scene that would be to take in. His disciples remembered later on as they, <laughs> imagine going through this with Jesus, you would just be like, can we wait outside I mean, until this is done? I don't want to be in the middle of this. They remembered the prophecy and it showed itself true of Jesus. Zeal for your house will consume me. It's interesting how Jesus referred to the, the house as his father's house. You have turned my father's house, my father's house, into a house of trade. If you were a disciple, you wouldn't forget that moment. They remembered it. This was the first cleansing of the temple that John 2 records. Now the synoptic gospels, Matthew, uh, Mark, and Luke, record later on in his ministry Jesus doing this again. In fact, those who are journeying with us through the Gospel of Luke were coming up to the cleansing of the, the temple for the second time when he drives them out again. And uh, so this happens earlier in his ministry when he goes up for Passover. The Jews come up to confront him after this whole scene takes place, and this is what they say. What sign do you show us for doing these things? Jesus answered them with these words. Now, here's the heart. This is the words that I want to really dial in on today. Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. Then the Jews said, it's, it's taken 46 years to build this temple, and will you raise it up in three days? What a fascinating interaction this must have been. In a sense, the, the Jewish leaders come to Jesus with this question. 
What sign do you give? I mean, who do you think you are? You can't come in here and interrupt this. You're causing pandemonium and chaos. What do you mean your father's house? Who are you? What gives you the right, Jesus, to do what you've done? Jesus' words in response are fascinating. Absolutely mind-blowing. He says, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. And the Jewish leaders automatically think, he's talking about the temple. It's right there. It's looming large. It's so tall and it's gorgeous and beautiful. 46 years of work, says. 46 years. Herod the Great was a master worker of, of building. He built all kinds of wonders in this area, but the thing that the Jews loved the most was that temple that he made. He made it gigantic, towering, beautiful, 46 years of work. Let me show you a little video from Dr. John DeLancey. Uh, this is a drone video from the city of Jerusalem. Here's the Mount of Olives that we're hovering over, and we're looking toward the Temple Mount now. Uh, from the east, southeast, here there's the corner uh, that looks down over the Kidron Valley. And here is the Temple Mount. Now you see where the Dome of the Rock is? Just right there is where the temple would have sat. And the Holy of Holies would have been right on the top of the Dome uh, of the Rock that the Dome covers. And so over here is the east, Kidron Valley. Look at the glory of this Temple Mount that Herod the Great built. It's still there to this day. It's still spectacular and towering over the city. The temple would have been... Uh, looming uh, so tall up above the dome of the rock and Jesus says destroy this temple and I will raise it up in three days now this would have been insulting to the Jewish leaders here's a a, a rendering an artist rendering uh, modeling of maybe what that would have looked like now that you've seen what it looks like today with the dome of the rock there there's the temple we're looking from the east to the west uh, this is the golden gate right here in front and the court of the Gentiles where Jesus is having this interaction. So they're, they're completely baffled as to why Jesus would say this as, as, as a sign. They mean a sign. What are you talking about? Tearing down the temple? Rebuilding it? What do you mean? They completely lose it. They don't understand it. Hmm. John 2 reveals Jesus, in fact, was speaking about the temple of his body. And John gives us this insight from firsthand experience. When, therefore, he, Jesus, was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this. And they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. That's pretty incredible. So they say, hey, who do you think you are, Jesus? You're coming in here, you're calling God your Father, and you're, you're cleansing the temple, you're pur purging it all. And he says, I'll give you a sign. You wanna, are you ready? Destroy this temple, and I will raise it up in three days. Wow. That is resurrection power prophesied right there. It is the mission of Jesus. That is why he came. God sent His Son into the world to live obedient and righteous before Him, something none of us have ever done. But He also sent Him into the world to lay down His righteous and obedient life on the cross. To, as it were, have His body destroyed 
by the Jews, by sinners, by me even, and you. And be buried for three days, and after three days, rise from the dead. That's his mission. And that is, my friends, the Easter celebration that we have here today. It is, in Jesus' own words, prophecy. Now, there were a number of other points where he prophesied about his uh, resurrection power that, was, that would be on display. In fact, it's right here, Luke 9, 22. The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day raised. Here's another example. In Matthew 12, 40, Jesus responds with this. Just as Jonah was in was, was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so the Son of Man will be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. Isn't that incredible? And another one. Taking the twelve, he said to them, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and everything that is written about the Son of Man and the prophets by the prophets will be accomplished. Listen to the level of detail here. He will be delivered to the Gentiles and mocked and shamefully treated and spit upon. And after flogging him, they will kill him. And on the third day, he will rise. Wow. Now, we know from a, a couple of different passages that the disciples, when Jesus talked this way, they just, they just didn't understand it. What, what kind of talk is this? If he's the Messiah, if he's the Savior, why is he talking about being beat and, 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 and flogged and, uh, and killed? Rising from the dead, what does that even mean? What, what's he talking about? Why would he talk this way? Hmm. It was the mission of Jesus. After it took place, the disciples understood. But until it took place, they just didn't understand. Now, resurrection previewed. There's a few different passages I want to show uh, about previews of the resurrection. Actually, three different interactions that I would put in the category of temporary resurrection. Okay, so Jesus has these, the, this earthly ministry that is conducted on this earth. He goes teaching and, and healing. And there's three different occasions where he raises people from the dead. Now, it's temporary because they would die again physically. But look at this. The widow of Nain's son, early in his ministry, Jesus uh, raises her son from the dead. It was in the middle of a, of a funeral. He raises her from the dead, Luke chapter 7. In uh, Luke chapter 8, Jesus raises the daughter of Jairus from the dead, okay? And then Lazarus of Bethany, maybe one of the most popular resurrections that Jesus did in John chapter 11. Lazarus was the beloved brother of Mary and Martha, and all three of these Jesus was extremely close to. He loved this family. He cared for them. He knew them well. He spent lots of time with them. And he received word one day from Mary and Martha. Listen to how it The sister sent to Jesus saying, Lord, he whom you love is ill. That's Lazarus. When Jesus heard it, he said, this illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God so that the Son of God may be glorified in it. Now, that's, hard, that's a hard response to process. So Jesus tells this to the messenger. He's basically saying, listen, what he has is not going to lead to death, but 
it's going to lead to glory. So the messenger goes back, and guess what? Lazarus has died. He's already died. Jesus takes his time. He waits another day or two where he's at, and then he journeys to Bethany where this all took place. The funeral is underway, and Jesus shows up. Think about this. The death and burial of Lazarus has already taken place. He's already in the, in the tomb. The, the tomb has been sealed. And at this point, they even said, it's four days probably uh, now that we're counting. They, they said, listen, he, 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 the aroma, the smell, he, he stinketh, as it were, right? I mean, four days dead. Jesus interrupts the mourners. Jesus weeps over the view of death and the grief of loved ones. He enters into that moment, but he knows full well what he's going to do. He has already said, this sickness does not lead to death, but to glory, the glory of the Son of Man. And so he goes and he stands in front of a sealed tomb where Lazarus is inside. Now, just a point here, Lazarus is not alive, okay? He's dead. He is not trying to find a way out of the tomb. He is not waiting around saying, well, I hope Jesus shows up because I, I can't really get out of this tomb. No, he's dead, lifeless. There is no life in this man. Four days, dead. Jesus comes and he cries out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out! And the man who had died came out. The tomb was opened. His hands and feet were bound with linen strips and his face was wrapped with a cloth. Jesus said to the people there, unbind him and let him go. What's that like? I mean, do you know anybody who's been dead for three or four days? Are you hungry, thirsty? I mean, if I'm a believer in the Lord and I've been with him face to face, I'm not sure I'm really big on coming back, right? I'd be like, wait, I got to die again? Lazarus was alive. They probably gave him some food, some water, and then they just began to hang out. Imagine the stories that man could tell. Now, Lazarus was one, along with these other two, that died again in normal, natural death. This is a glimpse of resurrection power. In a sense, it's a preview of what is to come. Jesus has this divine power. He looks upon death as if it's like sleep. I'll just, I'll just wake him up. No, you mean he's dead. It doesn't matter. The resurrection power he wields is like stirring someone from their sleep. He woke Lazarus from his death with words. So, resurrection prophesied, resurrection previewed, and now resurrection performed. This is Easter Sunday. This is the the joy of Easter Sunday. Listen to this passage from Luke 24. On the first day of the week, at early dawn, they went to the tomb taking spices. This is uh, Mary and and Mary. They're they're going there together to, to take care of Jesus' body. They found the stone rolled away from the tomb. And when they went in, They did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. While they were perplexed about this, behold, two men stood by them in dazzling apparel. They're likely kind of a blinding experience. 
as they were frightened, as is true, by the way, of every angelic interaction. Uh, we're not talking about cherubs, cute little cherubs. Here. We're talking about soldiers, brilliant, uh, white, shining, arrayed in armor. These are warriors of the Most High. The ladies were frightened. They bowed their faces to the ground. The men said to them, Why do you seek the living among the dead? He is not here, but has risen. Remember how he told you while he was still in Galilee that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified and on the third day rise? I mean, the angels were like, uh, I don't know if it's hard to put this together, but I'm pretty sure he predicted this. He said he would do this. And by God's grace, their memory clicked in and it all came together. They began to understand. He did say that. This is what he's talking about. This is the victory of the king that establishes the kingdom. It was the death of death. Jesus put death to death. He disarmed death. How? He took on the cause of death, which is sin. He took it on head on. Death, friends, is not our greatest enemy. Death is the result of sin. Sin is our great enemy. Sin is what has led us to death. It's rebellion against God. It's the the, the taking of God's image and marring it with, with sin and rebellion. It's breaking His laws and commandments. It's saying, I want to rule my life. I make up the rules. I decide what goes. Not you, God. I will be sovereign. Not you. That is why death is a part of our existence. Death is God's right response to our sin. It's part of the curse. It's what the broken world all around us, even the coronavirus, screams to us. Sin is serious. Every time there's a tsunami, every time there's an earthquake, a destructive fire, a crazy virus pandemic, the the loudest shout from creation is, sin is a problem. Look to Jesus. Repent of your sins. This is what the gospel is, friends. The good news. Death has been defeated. Sin, the power of sin, is broken. Listen to how the gospel reads, John 3, 16. For God the Father so loved the world that He gave. He gave. That word sums up so much of gospel. He gave His Son to live obedient. He gave His Son to die willingly, to lay His life down, to take our place, pay our sins to absorb our wrath so that whoever believes in him not everybody okay only those who believe in him will not perish but but in 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 amazing grace have eternal life because of his finished work because it wasn't just his death and burial but his resurrection that's the stamp of accepted His work of atonement was accepted by the Father. Victory is accomplished. 
That's resurrection power, friends. It's something Jesus had. It's something that the the Scriptures reveal page after page after page. It's something that was prophesied. It's something that was previewed. And it was something that was performed in full. It's something we celebrate today. Friends, without resurrection power, we'd be lost. Imagine if Jesus lived a perfect life and and died uh, the death of a martyr, right? The the, the death of of a righteous man who had never sinned. And then he just was dead. What kind of Savior is that? I'll tell you. It's the kind of Savior every other world religion has. They're all dead. All the heroes of every other world religion, they're all dead. They're six feet deep. Save one. Jesus Christ. He lives. He lives. He reigns today. Hmm. The power was so great when Jesus rose from the dead, it's almost like it overflowed, not on accident, on purpose. And listen to this fascinating passage from Matthew 27. Many bodies of saints who had fallen asleep were raised, coming out of the tombs after his resurrection. They went into the holy city, into Jerusalem, and appeared to many. This was a temporary resurrection for these people. But they were the saints, those who loved and anticipated the the arrival of the Messiah, had died and been buried, some, I'm sure, for years. The graves broke open, and they came out. Again, I ask the question, when was the last time you were having dinner with someone who'd been dead for days or weeks or years. And they're like, well, I don't know. I mean, I was dead, and now here I am eating at your dinner table. Jesus. Jesus. He makes dead men live. He makes dead women live. He makes dead people, dead in their sins, hopelessly unable to change their condition. He makes us live in resurrection power. Now, resurrection promised. This is such good news, friends. Such good news. In John 11, Jesus previews his his resurrection of Lazarus with these words. He says to, uh, to, uh, to Martha, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. And then he says to Martha, I imagine he looks her right in the eyes, and he says, do you believe this? Do you believe this? Listen to this claim. Jesus himself says, listen, if you are looking for life, if you are hoping to overcome death, if you need deliverance, then look to me. That's what he's saying. I am the victory over death. I'm the resurrection. It's me. I am the life. If you want life, eternal life, the kind of life that death cannot touch, come to me. How do you come? You come by believing. You come by believing. You have to try to be good enough or earn your way. You You just say, Lord, I trust you. I look to you. Save me. 
Forgiveness and eternal life are real. They're real, friends. I speak from my own experience that this life is real. I, I have it. I've had it for 38 years now, by God's grace. 38 years of life, the kind of life that death cannot touch. Been forgiven of my sins, past, present, and future. So many here who call this church their home can say the same. This is only found in Jesus Christ. Only in Jesus. Listen to the promise in Romans 8, a spectacular chapter. Paul says it this way, If the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, then He who raised Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through His Spirit who dwells in you. Wow. Spiritual life. That's the kind of life that death can't touch. Listen to how Paul says this, The trumpet will sound, and the dead in Christ, they will be raised imperishable, and we will be changed. For this perishable body, oh, friends, aren't we aware of that? In the middle of corona, suffering, sickness, frailty, pain, weakness, this perishable body must put on the imperishable. It must be glorified. This mortal body must put on immortality. When the perishable puts on the imperishable and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written. Listen to these words. Oh, these are Easter words. These are Resurrection Sunday words. Death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death. We're mocking death. Listen, death, where is your victory? Death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin. Do you see what he says? That's our real issue. The sting of death is sin. And the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory. How? Through our Lord Jesus Christ. What promises? We can have victory in Jesus. His victory becomes our victory. His, his triumph becomes our triumph by faith in Him. That's the good news of the gospel. That's the good news that will absolutely change your life. It will absolutely change the way you wake up every day. And it will absolutely change the way you think about and face death. It changes the way you walk through a, a corona pandemic. If you have victory in Jesus... You do not fear. You don't have to fear. Friends, our response this morning, so many things that we can apply from this this glimpse of glory, these various scriptures that have spoken of the, the power that Jesus wields when it comes to resurrection. I just want to land with a question. Do you believe this? You know, some people say, hey, listen, I, I'm cool. I think Jesus lived. I'm fine with that. I, I believe he lived and died. Some might even say, well, I, I believe he lived and died and rose again. But what does it have to do with me? I would say this, everything, everything. It's not enough to, to say, well, I believe in God. 
Well, so does Satan. Satan believes in God, right? It's not enough to know theology. Satan's theology is probably more tuned than many. But he still hates God. The difference maker in the equation is, have I come to him to find in him my hope, my victory? Have I turned from my sin to to trust Jesus to save me, rescue me, to break the chains of sin in my life and forgive me? Listen to this promise. What a spectacular promise this is. Everyone, oh, everyone, everyone, Jew or Gentile, slave or free, right? Wherever you are in this world, whatever your situation, whatever your economic status, whatever your history or your past or your future, here, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord, that is Jesus Christ, will be saved. Do you believe this? Is Jesus Christ your Lord and Savior today? I would just plead with you this morning. As you watch this, as you take in this worship, I just would plead with you, if you have yet to do this, then make today the day that you come to life to never die. Make today the day, by God's grace, to to open your heart to the King and welcome Him into the throne of your life. Make this today. Be the day that you turn from your sins and trust Jesus. When I say turn from sin, I mean this. I was marching this way, living for me, doing what I wanted. And and all of a sudden, God got a hold of my heart and He spun me around. And I say no to my sin. I want to live for you. I want to live in your light. I want to enjoy your life and obey you and have you be the king on the throne of my life. I look to you in faith. May today be the day that you do that. Would you pray with me? Oh, Father, we come now to do important work. We come into your presence and we come by faith We come in the name of Jesus. We have a Savior, a mediator, a hope, a a, a ransom payer on our behalf. We come looking to Him to save us from our sins. Because of what He has accomplished, we can come to You, O Father, and we can call You our Father. We delight in the finished work of Your Son, Jesus Christ. We thank You that there was a cup that was filled with your wrath and that Jesus drank that cup all the way. He drained it completely for those who trust in Him. And Father, if there be any here who are listening today or watching this, I pray if if, if they have not yet turned from their sins, repented and, and trusted Jesus as Savior, I pray even now, that they would have in their hearts the stirring from you through your Spirit. Lord, call them to yourself, I pray. If you feel like the Lord is doing that in your heart, would encourage you, just, just say these words. 
Lord Jesus, I look to you to save me from my sins. I ask that your work on my behalf be applied to my life. I look to you to be the king in my heart, to sit on the throne of my life. Please save me today. I trust you. I will follow you. It seems so simple, and yet it's so profound. It is the most important words, prayer, longing, belief, faith you can ever own. Those words, that change of mind will change your life forever. Oh, Lord, we delight in the good news that you have given today through the finished work of Jesus Christ. Thank you that our sins can be forgiven. Thank you that you have done exceeding wonders beyond our wildest imagination. And Lord, for all those who look to you in faith and trust your son Jesus, we long for the day when you will come. Whether we're alive physically when that happens or not, we know that resurrection power will be applied and we will be changed. And all those who have died in Christ will be raised. And Lord, we will be with you forever. Come, Lord Jesus, come. We delight in you. We look for your return. It's in your name we pray. Amen.